The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.deliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. All right, thank you so much for joining us. We're gonna be talking about the importance of liberal arts education beyond the bounds of the university. And I am joined by two absolutely wonderful guests who I am very excited to hear from. So I will introduce myself very briefly and then um, introduce them to you. I am Angel Adams Parham. I am a professor of sociology at Loyola University in New Orleans. And I am joined by Dr. Emily Auerbach, so Emily is a University of Wisconsin-Madison professor of English, the co-director and founder of the life-changing UW Odyssey Project and co-host of Wisconsin's public radio's University of the Air. She's also the author of the book, Searching for Jane Austen and project director of the Courage to Write series of radio programs and written guides about women writers. Emily has won numerous teaching, programmatic, broadcasting, diversity, and humanitarian awards for her work with non-traditional students in her nearly four decades at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Dr. Frances Sue is the Benedictson Carwa Professor of Mathematics at Harvey Mudd College and a former president of the Mathematical Association of America. His research is in geometric combinatronics and applications to the social sciences, but he's also known as a popularizer of mathematics. In 2013, he received the HIMO Award, a nationwide teaching prize for college math faculty. And in 2018, he won the Halmos Ford Writing Award. His work has been featured in Quanta Magazine, Wired, and the New York Times. His book, Mathematics for Human Flourishing, winner of the 2021 Euler Book Prize, is an inclusive vision of what math is, who it's for, and why anyone should learn it. Thank you so much for joining us as well. All right, so could you First, just tell us what got you in, and we'll start with um, Emily, what got you into doing liberal arts education outside of the university? What path took you there? Well, I started as an assistant professor of English a long time ago, almost 40 years ago, charged with outreach. Because one thing that the University of Wisconsin has is something called the Wisconsin idea, where the borders of the university are supposed to be the borders of the state. So my mission from the beginning of my professorship was to take the humanities and spread it beyond the campus. So that meant talking about writers in libraries, elder hostels, retirement centers, prisons, the back of grocery stores on the radio, finding different ways to reach a non-traditional public. And I love it. So that's how I got into it. And then the UW Odyssey project, which I've done for the last 18 years is an outgrowth of that, trying to reach out to those who don't have money and are traditionally labeled not college material. Excellent, thank you. And Francis, how did you get into doing liberal arts education outside of the university? 
thanks. Yeah, I so I I was uh, I guess I've been sort of drawn into it without uh, without um, uh, doing it uh, consciously. I mean, I got a, a letter out of the blue from uh, uh, an incarcerated man, uh, now my friend uh, Christopher Jackson. And so he wrote me for help in furthering his math education. And so that started a correspondence that we've continued now over many years, discussing uh, not just math, but things about life and, and, and also even education in general, because math isn't the only thing that he's, he's studying. Excellent. Very nice. Now, Emily, I've read a little bit about the background of the Odyssey Project, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And I should say, um, too, that I am a UW-Madison grad and so you know just very proud that Madison has this kind of program and I'd love for you to share just a little more about the program you know how how was it set up how did it get started um, can you tell us a little bit, bit about that sure so one of my colleagues at Wisconsin Public Radio had had on her radio show Earl Shores as a guest and he had started something called the Clementi Course in the Humanities in New York and then it spread to other parts of the country. It's a great works course for adults at the poverty level with the idea that it can help bring about a transformation of self. And so I was approached about starting something like that in Madison. Uh, but the model that I wanted to follow was different than the Clementi. So I took some of those ideas about using history, art history, philosophy, literature and writing, but also combined it with my own family story. Both my parents came out of poverty through Berea College, which is a free school in, the, in Kentucky designed for the poor. And uh, my mother came out of poverty in Appalachia with no running water. My father was a refugee from Nazi Germany. So his story of poverty was that of the immigrant. That's where they met and married. Um, and I saw in their case that having free access to a college education could change the lives, not only of that one student, but the entire family and generations. So my commitment was not just to a great works course, it was how can we take adults who are at the poverty level and provide them with a pathway to a full liberal arts degree and all that that brings, the way I had seen it do for my parents. Mm. And it's a pretty challenging course of study. Can you give us a sense, you know, kind of a sample of some of the kinds of things that your students are studying? Sure. So we read uh, Plato's Apology and Crito and Allegory of the Cave. We read Shakespeare, Emily Dickinson, Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, Frederick Douglass's narrative of his escape from slavery. Um, it's all kinds of challenging materials. Last night I was teaching Emily Dickinson um, and it's, challenging material that we then ask our students to respond to, not just by analyzing it, but also making it part of their own lives. So we take Ebenezer Scrooge out of Dickens' A Christmas Carol and turn him into a modern day landlord. Or mm -hmm. I had one uh, student who set Macbeth in Chicago. Uh, so it's taking what we read, the challenging words that are there, cracking that open and making them feel they have mastery over it and it belongs to them. And then hearing their response. And that's one way that our program differs from the original Clementi model is that we bring in the arts. I was originally a music major as well as an English major. And I believe in the power of the arts as well as the humanities. So we do both in the UW Odyssey project. Hmm. So what are, what are some of the artistic outlets that you use to help students get into the material? 
For one thing, we have a newsletter, a student newsletter uh, that we share every couple of weeks where we feature students writing and photographs and art and have them share that in class. We also bring in theater, uh, live music, when it's not a pandemic, field trips to an art museum or to concerts and, and plays. Um, and then also asking students to respond with their own poetry and creative work as well as academic assignments. Wow. That's, that's really amazing. And I want to come back to that and, and ask a few more questions, but I want to get to um, Francis as well. Could you tell us a little more about your, your co-author, you know, how you got into contact and just a little bit about who he is and, and what the correspondence has been like? Christopher is a, um, uh, is a, uh, uh, somebody who's always loved learning. Uh, I think, uh, if I understand his 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 story, he's he's often just not been challenged enough necessarily in school. Uh, and uh, when he got into high school, he uh, got involved in drugs and with the wrong crowd. Ended up uh, with a uh, involved in a string of armed robberies, uh, and so and that led to uh, under some very harsh uh, min mandatory minimum sentence laws to a very harsh sentence, thirty two years. Uh, and so here's a teenager, basically, but when he was first incarcerated, who is looking at 30, you know, plus years in prison. Uh, and, you know, over, over the first seven years of his time, he, he sort of rededicated himself to education and learning. Uh, and so uh, in many ways, his, he's, you know, this isn't really uh, a story about me teaching Christopher math is actually a story about how Chris has taught me a lot of uh, things that I thought I knew well about my own profession, such as the fact that actually mathematics can be, you know, inspiring in, in ways even that I would not have necessarily um, had the courage to believe that everybody has something to gain from learning math, even if you never use it for a practical application. I mean, in some ways that uh, the thing that's really wonderful about what Chris is doing is he is pursuing a life of the mind, a life of learning. You know, I, I would say he's fully rehabilitated in, in ways that uh, I think it is hard for people to see from the outside. Hmm. That's fascinating. So I'm curious, you know, and I don't know to what extent you can answer this in terms of your correspondence with him, but how, how has it been, you know, kind of living this life of the mind? What, what, what has it done exactly, or how has it, how has it shaped him in ways that you think have really rehabilitated him, where he might not have had the same experience if he hadn't had this mathematics life? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in in in, um, I, I think one of the things is that it's it's uh, it's certainly built in him a, a certain kind of uh, persistence. Uh, to sit with problems uh, long enough and, and realize that actually hard problems can be solved. Uh, I think that's something that uh, is maybe those of us who have had the benefit of being mathematically trained or, or trained in the liberal arts uh, actually take for granted the fact that that hard problems, maybe even intractable problems, the ones that seem improbable, you can actually at least hopefully make some progress on uh, through uh, persisting. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, you know, I think that's one thing that's given him a lot of um, courage and hope. 
Another is that that he's experiencing a certain kind of freedom, a freedom that he otherwise wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, be experiencing physically. But um, the life of the mind is, I think, opening up windows and doors for him to uh, to see the world in in, a, in bigger ways. Like you know, one of the things he often we often talk about is just this, the state of what's going on in the U.S. And he's he has lots of insights that. I think are, are unique and uh, and challenge me in ways that you know I otherwise would not have have had um, because I don't have the perspectives or the, or the experiences that that he's had. And so I think those are those are two two really important ways. And then of course there are lots of maybe smaller ways that that are just built up because doing mathematics actually is is training and logic and thinking. Um, he often credits. Um, is you know he's he's actually reading a lot of law now, and he credits uh, his experience in mathematical thinking uh, with helping him craft arguments. You know, so right now um, uh, he's he's uh, trying to to, uh, to to make legal efforts to try to reduce his sentence, uh, and so you know he's basically acting as his own representation uh, in the courts, and uh, and he would say mathematical training has actually trained him. To think carefully and uh, and to make logical arguments. That's extraordinary, and and so in that sense, the the study of math has been freeing of his mind and potentially freeing of him of his body if he's able to, you know, yes, successfully make this this argument legally. Yes, one of the things that's great about education in general, liberal arts education in general, is is that it does have these practical benefits, but Part of why we do it is 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 because it's it just leads to having a richer uh, life, a richer uh, ability to understand what's going on in the world, uh, and uh, and that's something that that I think is is uh, is wonderful, e even apart from the benefits that an education brings. Yeah, and that's what I actually wanted to get to next. Is so the reason that people are 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 surprised, you know. When they hear the kinds of stories that you all are giving is because you know most of us think well those who have been uh, persistently disadvantaged they're just not in a position to be able to benefit from you know such a, a, a rigorous and, and difficult education and what you have shown um, in the relationships and the, the the liberal arts work that you've been doing is that that's not true and so it just gets at this larger question that you started to get at francis of what exactly is a liberal arts education for? Uh, who is it for? When I've been speaking with different populations on this topic, you know, I remember doing a, a whole presentation on, you know, kind of what, what are the liberal arts and what is it for and the idea of it being freeing. And one of the first questions I got was, yes, but how is my son or daughter going to get a job? You know, and so it kind of just comes back to this practical issue. And then, you know, when I think about young people, I also do work in my community with um, young people from low income backgrounds who are coming from difficult backgrounds as well. And so one of the things that people, well-meaning people often think is, we really just need to focus on vocational training, get them a skill, you know, that's the best thing you can do. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that at all. It's very important to have good vocational skills as well as other kinds of skills. But 
it comes back to this question of why, why Shakespeare, Plato, algebra, calculus, you know, why do all that when you look out and you just see a lot of people struggling? Like in your case, Emily, you know, people are homeless sometimes. You know, the last thing they need is Socrates, right? Well, I, jump, I would jump in on that um, because yes, we have had students in my program who were homeless, sleeping on the floor of a barber shop or on the street when they came into Odyssey. And they now have bachelor's and master's degrees, jobs, um, homes when they once were, were homeless. I've seen, because we've been doing it for 18 years, a, a genuine transformation that can take place. But the Shakespeare and the Socrates and everything else can play a role that you might not expect. Um, let me just give you an example of one metaphor, because one of the things we do is look at metaphor poems with Langston Hughes and Emily Dickinson and others. And then I have students write their own metaphor and also come up with a visual art representation of themselves. And I had one student a few years ago who decided to represent herself as a revolving door where she was trapped inside it, because just as she was about to get out the other side, her friends that were still on drugs dragged her back around and she never actually got out of the door. And she said that it was, and she had been in and out of prison before coming into Odyssey on drug related charges. She said it wasn't until coming up with that way of metaphorically envisioning her life that she was able to break free of drugs. Wow. That's just one of many examples I can give you in our program of students who read a text or wrote a piece and changed their whole life way of thinking of themselves and others. And so I think it's a mistake to underestimate the power of the humanities to get really deeply inside of people and start a transformation uh, that can indeed begin a, to break cycles of, of poverty and cycles of a certain kind of thinking that can keep people in, in chains. And we now do have an Odyssey Beyond Bars program in the prison. And I've seen the transformation in the classes that we hold there as well, where um, students who have never been asked to read a poem or write it, or to read Malcolm X's autobiography where he discovers books while in prison, I've seen how it can radically transform their view of themselves. And maybe later they do go on to get a trade or a skill and certain kinds of employment. But first they've got to start with their sense of themselves and their place in the world. That's absolutely crucial. Yeah, I really love what Emily said. I, I think that uh, uh, one of the, 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 uh, the things that math enables you to do is to see hidden patterns. The, the, the see the unseen in some sense. Um, what Emily's referring to is, is not just math's power, but just education in general gives you the power to make connections, uh, to see for yourself certain things that uh, connections, make connections you might not have made before uh, in, in, uh, in owning your own learning in some sense. I think that's, uh, I'm not sure if, if that was exactly how Emily put it earlier, but, but this is, you know, this is, this is, this is why learning is such a wonderful thing, right? One writer said that um, literature is equipment for living. Uh, and similarly, I think of mathematics as equipment for thinking. And uh, who, who doesn't want to, to have a richer understanding of, of how to live in this world? That's a difficult world to live in. And many people have, uh, have had hard experiences and they've written about it. And that's why literature can be so gripping, right? Like, uh, 
and 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 when you see math's power, for instance, to to uncover some of the the patterns that are going on in the world, who, who doesn't want that power? Like, I mean, there's so many ways that these things it, it, it's not measurable in terms of you know necessarily in terms of you know job skills, but it it certainly does I think have pay, payoffs in in terms of job skills. Uh, but that is of course. It's hard for me to sell it that way because I, I don't believe education uh, is specifically just for getting a good job. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And this brings me to another, another question that I'm very curious about for both of you, which is what kinds of differences, um, if any, do you see between the way your um, traditional college students respond to the material that you teach and the students who are in the community? Is there, is it pretty similar way of responding? Is, is it different in any way? I would say, and I've had now 500 students who have graduated from the Odyssey Project, ranging in age from 18 to 71 and coming from all different kinds of backgrounds, but all sharing a lack of financial resources. 95% of them are students of color all of them just about have experienced discrimination, adversity. Many have been homeless or dealing with incarceration. I had one student who had grown up in 42 foster homes. There's a, a lot of trauma in the background. You know, if you look at, at who is poor and what has made them poor, often you're going to get into all kinds of in, instances of trauma and discrimination. And I would say the difference that I see with the 500 students that I've worked with in the Odyssey Project compared to the traditional undergraduates that I had in my classes on the Madison campus, the 18 to 21 year olds uh, coming right out of high school. I think the students in my Odyssey Project, they, when they write and speak, they do so from the heart and they have lived experiences that they bring to the table that enrich our discussions in ways that I can't even begin to tell you what it is like. So. I have had the best discussions of literature out in South Madison in, with our Odyssey students or even over a Zoom screen now in this pandemic with the Odyssey students because they're not speaking carefully with thesis sentences and worrying about their grades and you know having that sort of careful limited mindset that some traditional students do. They are crying, they're laughing, they're sharing um, real experiences and so I would say the main difference is that the students that I'm working with, they are craving knowledge. They're craving something that will change the future for themselves and their children. They want to give back to people who have helped them. And uh, the, what, the kinds of discussions that we're having are infinitely richer. Um, yeah, I think in, in Chris's case, it's very, it's, uh, very similar in, in, in uh, the sense that you know, he's, he's pursuing learning, you know, he's following rabbit trails. He's uh, deciding, you know, as he gets interested in this or that topic, that he's going to try to learn more about this or that topic. So his, his path through education hasn't been linear. Uh, in fact, even in mathematics, he's sort of jumping over some topics to, to learn about other topics. It's a more organic way of learning. And so that, I think, is, is very different. Uh, I think it, it exposes, for me, for instance, uh, the role that communities play in shaping the way education education happens, right? He's been sort of doing his own education in isolation, which has advantages and some disadvantages. Some disadvantages are the language he speaks about, the way he talks about math is actually a little different than the way you would talk about it if you had 
you know, everybody had the same standard set of courses or something like that. Uh, on the other hand, he's able to have certain insights that I'm not able to have because I've sort of had this rigid, limited view, maybe an education that's been more formal in some ways. Uh, and so that's been, I think, wonderful for me in terms of, uh, in terms of our uh, interactions. And so, I, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I also think that having a multi-generational program really changes the discussions when you get to history. Uh, for example, you know, the 71 year old that was in my class when we were talking about the civil rights movement, she talked about how uh, growing up on a, in a suburb of, of Chicago, Evanston, and when she went into labor, Evanston Hospital would not take her in because she was black and she had to go to Cook County. And I saw that when she was talking about how that had happened to her, right next to her was an 18 year old and the jaw dropped. And, you know, we have now had uh, a grandmother who took the class and then 10 years later, a grandchild comes through our program and, you know, we have a whole family involved, especially now that we have Odyssey Junior. And I guess one thing that I would say is um, with the Odyssey Project, I've learned the value of, of a whole family approach to learning. I think in our society, we often segregate people. So you just have college students of a certain age in dorms taking classes. And in our program where we have seniors, we have children, um, we, you know, that we have multiple generations together. It changes the dialogue. It changes the, what, what you're able to, to do as a group. And so um, I'm a big believer in, in the family approach to learning. And that reminds me of Odyssey Junior. Could, could you um, tell us something about Odyssey Junior and how that works? Sure. Well, from the beginning, and that's 18 years ago, we've had free childcare because that's one of the barriers that a lot of our students face. And so we partnered with the local Head Start and had childcare on the site in the evenings when we had class. And then, um, and, and, you know, sometimes, for example, back into, I see your picture on my banner. So in, in the class of 2006, I had a, a woman in my class who brought her granddaughter to our childcare. She was eight at the time. That granddaughter said that was the first time she thought of college is when her grandmother was in the Odyssey program and graduated from it. And that eight-year-old um, graduated from the UW-Madison last spring with her bachelor's and is applying to law school. She also did an internship with the NAACP in Washington, DC and wants to be a lawyer fighting racial discrimination. Um, Odyssey Junior, we, uh, we saw that the older kids also were hanging around the library or the classroom when their where parents were with us. And so we now offer programming all, all the way for teenagers as well. And when it's not the pandemic, uh, we were working with 56 children in three different classrooms, all having dinner and all doing enrichment, uh, children's newsletter, field trips, and getting excited about learning because we want them to think of themselves as college bound. That's extraordinary and uh, that's amazing. Um, so can you say some more about what, how, what is, how do you occupy the children in Odyssey Junior? Because I know they've got a, a curriculum that's somewhat parallel to what the parents are doing. Yeah, I think all right, one of the big goals in the Odyssey Project and then also in Odyssey Junior or in Odyssey Beyond Bars in the prisons or in Onward Odyssey, our program for alumni, one of our biggest goals is to help our students identify their dreams and find their voices and get on a pathway to power. And that can take many different forms. For the children, sometimes it is doing 
writing about themselves or artwork, seeing that published, um, having teachers who believe in the gifts they have and will work with them. Some of the children that we work with have actually been in trouble in the school system or been labeled as, as problems. And when they work in a caring envir environment with a diverse group of teachers and uh, fellow students, they start to blossom in ways that the parents are then thrilled with. So and we're also providing tutoring in a family learning center where they can get help with their homework. It's a very holistic approach, which makes just makes very good sense. It really does. So I wanted to think about, because you've talked some, you know, about the, the different ways that those that you're working with outside of the university, how they explore this material and have insights that can be often quite different than traditional age students. And I'm wondering um, in what ways your community-based work has perhaps informed your teaching and or your scholarly writing in academia? So that is, you know, what are there things that you're bringing from the community work that directly affect your teaching or your writing? Well, I, I would just say that I, having done the Odyssey Project for the last 18 years, I've gotten very impatient with academia and with uh, traditional academic writing and scholarship if it's not going to help on the ground. I, I don't know, I don't want to come across sounding too bitter or cynical, but you know, I've got families who are suffering right now. They don't have enough food on the table. Uh, they've lost wages. They're, we're trying to keep them housed. They're trying to go to school while caring for children. And it, it's just so hard out there. And um, I'm really, over the years that I've done the Odyssey Project, I've gotten impatient with academic studies that don't ultimately point the way to change and don't involve the communities in the study as well. So um, I, I am much more interested in hearing what somebody has to say at the Urban League or the Public Library or um, you know, some of the agencies, the United Way that are working with the families that I'm working with than I am in reading a yet another paper on a, a writer who died 300 years ago just so somebody can put a publication on their resume and get tenure. And I, I know that sounds, I mean, I had the luxury of already having tenure when I started Odyssey but um, right now I'm just so filled with passion to change the state of this world. Um, right here in Madison is what I can work on with the Odyssey Project, but I'm just so filled with anger about the injustice that I'm more interested in reading editorials than uh, dry academic studies. Mm. I want to absolutely come back to this because this, you're getting into something that's extremely important. But Francis, I wanted to hear um, your response to the question about, you know, how perhaps has your relationship with Chris, it, has it in any way informed your teaching? I know it's informed your writing with your book. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that I think uh, a lot about now is uh, how would uh, I how do I try to reach every student in my class in, in ways that, you know, maybe, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I'd just be thinking, okay, you know, this is how I teach and this is how students learn rather than uh, appreciating the, the many uh, kinds of backgrounds that students come from and many kinds of experiences that they bring into to class. So how do I connect mathematics to what, to what their experiences are rather than to the, to my experiences, which is often the easy way to teach. That's the, 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 uh, 
the way that's more, most comfortable, but is not the most effective. Um, it certainly meant that in terms of active, the way I, I teach uh, in engaging students in active learning uh, is, has, has increased um, because of um, my interactions with Chris. You know, one of the things that we've interacted over is, you know, rather than sort of setting traditional academic text, one of the things that we've gotten involved in is a research project together. And because I fully believe that uh, in the power of discovery and people getting excited about that, and it, you don't have to have like a huge background in order to do it. Uh, and so, uh, and so he's now, we've now written a paper together that's about to appear in a, in a math journal. Uh, and, and, and that's a way that we've, I, we've been able to, to get to know each other better, right? And that's another thing that I think that happens over, um, over thinking about ideas together is, is you, you build community in, 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 the, in the most ideal forms of education. Community has to be an essential part of that. Very exciting to hear. And I, I look forward to seeing the paper. I don't know if I will understand it, but um, I would love to, to see that when it comes out. So for both of you, um, just to get back to some of the points that Emily was making about the university. And this is something you know that's definitely heavily on my mind um, doing the community work that I do as well is, you know, what is it in the, what is it in the structure of the university that makes it so that the kind of work you're doing is not very common? Um, what is it in the structure of the university? And, you know, this gets into deeper questions, which we probably can't fully do justice to, of, you know, what, what could or should the mission of the university be? So I know, Emily, you've talked about the Wisconsin idea, which I'm familiar with um, being a UW grad. And so I think that idea has allowed, you know, it kind of provides um, a discourse for doing work in the community, right? Um, but I guess what I'm wondering from you, given your experience, what do you think universities could be doing to make it so that there is a more um, integrated relationship between the community and the university. Yeah, and, and I, I'll just say too that I just did a month ago a, a book launch. I had a chapter in a book called Renewing the Wisconsin Idea. And it was about, published by the University of Wisconsin Press, but it was about finding that uh, Wisconsin idea I, and, and really doing more with it to extend what the university does into a broader area. You know, I think one of the reasons that the UW Odyssey Project has succeeded because we have a, a just really high graduation rate and retention rate, all kinds of successes. We now have one of our graduates who's serving on the UW Board of Regents. We have another who ran for public office. He's now an older person. We have one directing plays in Chicago who used to be incarcerated and homeless. You know, we have these success stories. And I think when, when that starts to happen, and you can see, oh, when given care and resources, you can take someone who might've been written off and not only is their life better, but the university is better. Because I would argue, and this is one of the things I did not like about the Clementi model is the book by Earl Shores was called Riches for the Poor. Again, Riches for the Poor, which made me imagine like some colonialists come in with their Plato and Shakespeare. Here we are with our riches, you lucky poor people. And I would argue that my mother had riches in her when she arrived at Berea. She had only one skirt and two shirts, but she was rich inside. She might not have known it, 
but she brought riches there. And the students in the Odyssey program, when they go to a university, they bring um, riches into that classroom and they make the experience better for everyone. So, you know, I think the university has to understand that, that it is a reciprocal benefit. And then they have to be willing to put the resources there. We have raised lots of grants and donations, but also university support. It is not cheap. It's not cheap to take a chance on people who live off campus, who need childcare, who need food, who need a social worker, and to, you know, we cover the cost of the tuition and books and help them keep going in school. So I think the, the key is for people to believe it's possible and to see the results. And, um, you know, I think especially after the summer we had with the George Floyd murder and a lot of the attention being paid right now to deep injustices and centuries of systemic racism and economic injustice, I think now more than ever, and the pandemic with its disproportionate effects on communities that are low income, I think now more than ever is the time to push for this as a basic right to extend the liberal arts to those who are being written off. I like it very much. Francis, what would you say? Yeah, I, I, I would only add to that. I think the, the, uh, the education, uh, the university has to change its, uh, broaden its incentives uh, for, for uh, faculty to engage in work that, that actually um, uh, involves the community rather than a very narrow view of what academic academic work is, which is often viewed as just, you know, publishing uh, highly technical papers in one's field and uh, impacting, you know, very few people. Uh, and so I, I would love to see universities begin to value that kind of work. And, ma and many universities have as part of their mission, an outward facing component. Uh, and, uh, but, the, but they don't in practice uh, value that when it comes time to promotion and tenure. And I think that's the key issue, isn't it? <laughs> right? You know, so there is, um, there's a, a phrase or a word that we have here in New Orleans called lanyap, which means a little something extra. And so it kind of turns into this situation where the community work you do is lanyap to the rest of what you're supposed to be doing, which is publishing um, and then teaching on campus. And even the, the idea of service at the university is service to the university. And you know, it doesn't necessarily assume or include service in the community. And so you find yourself in a situation where if you're going to be doing this kind of work, you're doing it on top of everything else that you're expected to do. To do. And it's not necessarily integrated, as you say, Francis, into the incentive structure or into promotion and tenure. Um, we are coming toward the end of our time. And so what I wanted to do is to maybe see, you know, for others out there who are watching, who would love to do some kind of community work like this, who perhaps are junior faculty members um, who don't have tenure, um, you know, all the way up to those who do have tenure, but are wondering how they might have the time. How would you speak to um, people who are faculty members at different points in their career who might be interested in getting into this kind of work and in some way? Well, first of all, I would say um, visit our Odyssey website, odyssey.wisc.edu. Email me, I'd be happy to talk to anyone who's interested in setting up something. 
And then I would say, take a plunge. Um, one of my deans are, um, said that sometimes it's like I take a, a leap and they try to get the net under me to catch me. But sometimes if you wait until you get the approval from everyone, um, if you take all this time to figure out all the things that, you, that might go wrong, you never get anything going. And I would say, be bold. If you care about something and you went into your field because you love it and you see injustice around you and you think of an idea, write a grant, you know, go all, all the way to the top, speak to a chancellor or find someone who um, is a success story who can help come to the place you are and sell it to the people that you need the approval from. And I would just say be bold and do it because it's what can keep you sane. It can make you wake up and feel so glad to have a day to do what you love and to make a difference. Um, I, I think, you know, that's all I would say is, is be bold and try. Thank you. That, that's great. I, I really, I really, I'm just following Emily because she's like saying everything that's, that's awesome. And then I'll just add a little bit, you know, I mean, I read a friend, a friend wrote this article that I just read this morning uh, about uh, taking risks. Uh, and, uh, and one of the, the main messages there was uh, do things that you love because, you know, that, that's what will sustain you. I think Emily just said this, this is what will sustain you through your academic career. And if, if, uh, if this kind of work is, uh, is important to you or it's something that you're interested in, um, then see, see the intrinsic worth in it and do it because that's important. And then uh, find ways to, to get your university or your, your program to support you. I mean, uh, writing grants is one way because it's tangible ways that a university can measure um, what you're doing. Another way is to collaborate with people who are already doing this work and, uh, and then you can, you know, find ways to to uh, to disseminate that scholarship. And, and and finding a mentor maybe is perhaps the last thing that I would say is someone who's who's sort of uh, a few steps ahead of you in the academic uh, uh, track, who's found a way to make it work. I would add one more thing, which is involve your family. Um, you know, my dad turned his 90th birthday um, into a benefit for the Odyssey Project, raised over 100,000 for the program. Uh, one of my daughters helps edit the newsletter and I think you know just bringing people from your family in when you can so that you don't have to somehow uh, so your family time sometimes can become part of what you're doing and uh, that's that's helped me over the years with my three children and three grandchildren um, make them involved too. Excellent advice. Well, Emily Auerbach and Francis Sue, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here with us to talk about this very important subject. And thank you so much for your work in the community. Thanks for your work thank you. too. Thanks for, <laughs> for this program. All right, take care. <laughs>